Live from WNUR News, I'm Erica Schmidt. You're listening to the 6 o'clock news on WNUR 89.3 FM, HD1, Evanston, Chicago. It's Friday, March 3rd, 2023. Tonight on WNUR News, I cover the Chicago municipal elections going on, some news on Vietnam Nam closing, an A&E story highlighting a popular WNUR block, Street Beat, a missing case of the geometry department from Max, and this week's installment of the Fairweather Friends. Those stories coming up tonight on WNUR News at 6. Thanks for tuning in. The Chicago municipal election results are currently still coming out. The four primary candidates include current Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, Paul Vallis, Brandon Johnson, and Jose G. Garcia. On Tuesday, no candidates won an outright majority. This means that the top two finishers will advance to the April 4th runoff. These candidates are Paul Vallis, who won 33.7% of votes, and Brandon Johnson with 20.3% of votes. Trailing behind them was current Mayor Lori Lightfoot at 17.1% and Garcia with 13.7%. We will take a closer look at Lightfoot's candidacy and then get into Vallis and Johnson's campaigns. Lightfoot made history as Lightfoot made history as the first black woman and openly gay person to lead Chicago, and she won all 50 wards during the 2019 runoff election. But according to CBS, this is the first time in 40 years that an incumbent Chicago mayor was defeated after one term. During her term, she had to address issues related to the economic recession, the pandemic, and the crime wave still currently going on. Some people argued this made it more difficult for her during her term as mayor. One of the primary complaints Chicago residents had about Lightfoot's term was the level of serious crime that rose. Total serious crime rose by more than 33% between 2019 and 2022. Now, taking a look at the other two candidates, Paul Velez and Brandon Johnson. Paul Velez is the former CEO of Chicago Public Schools. He ran for mayor in 2019 and believes in school choice. Much of his campaign has garnered support from Chicago's more conservative police union. This is because much of his campaign focuses on public safety. Brandon Johnson is a Cook County commissioner, a former school teacher, and was a paid organizer for the Chicago Teachers Union. His political views lean more left of center. That's all from me tonight on the Chicago elections. COVID has been impacting restaurants to point of closure in recent years. And now our beloved Norris and downtown Evanston restaurant, Vietnam Nam, is one of them. Moria Petway took the story last week. Friday, February 24th, marked the closing of the Norris restaurant and franchise, Vietnam Nam. Vietnam Nam owner Alan Moy says that COVID made sustaining the business very difficult. So we have had one heck of a run and it's been 
call it uh, almost eight years in the making and three in the pandemic. And we have done everything we certainly can to have had one heck of a story. We've done everything to grow even during a very difficult time. But, uh, you know, as we have continued to trudge through this very challenging marketplace and environment and economy, um, things haven't seemingly gotten much easier on us. You know, we've, we've certainly seen costs go up astronomically in many ways, 200%, 500% sometimes on food costs, packaging, uh, wages are way up, uh, rents have gone up on us, uh, just a whole bunch of factors. Alan says the business has had recent success, but the overall costs are just too overwhelming to continue. We have had our biggest sales year ever, for example, in 20. Uh, 22 which we're so proud of but at the same time some of our costs are so much higher than ever he says that the locations work symbiotically so when one location is struggling so is the entire business uh, we built this to be very symbiotic across our locations but at the same time with all these challenges um symbiotic type um dynamics also make it challenging so that it's been hard to decouple you know all of our different real estate footprints so we have a couple locations up in Evanston, we had a couple of locations in Chicago, and it's just the timing to be able to reinvent ourselves one more time and to take extra efforts to sort of consolidate our operations and, I guess, then reinvent ourselves. Uh, it just seemed like this was a time to pause. Alan understands that the closure is challenging for everyone involved, especially his employees, so he hopes to assist them as they transition. Taking care of my team is absolutely paramount. I have every shift, every closing shift, every conversation I have with my team members, um, we're trying to support them. So we literally, I was in the office of the Compass Group uh, management team just singing the praises of one of my team leaders today at the end of my conversations and thank yous at, at Norris. Um, I've been on the phone uh, multiple times today speaking to some of our workforce development partners. So we have a lot of community partners and um, our tenancy over at the hatchery down at East Garfield Park because there's so many amazing resources and that includes some wonderful individuals who can really and literally help my team members be placed out of their jobs, make phone calls for them, help them with their resume writing, help them with their interview prep. Um, I have an individual from that group coming out physically you know, and in person next Tuesday. So we have some you know, extra shifts for people to break down, clean up and you know, pack up our store. Vietnam non-worker at Norris, Giovanni Patino, enjoyed working for the restaurant and it's sad to move on. I mean, uh, for, for me, like, and I could say it for like all of us, like I could say that we all like really enjoyed working here actually. As you can tell, like we finished wrong with it, like we ended up breaking it down and everything, but all due, like all due means, like for real, like it was just a blast working with every single person that was here. Northwestern students are also going to miss Vietnam Nam at Norris. Northwestern student Asher Bank was looking forward to his go-to rice bowl from Vietnam Nam for lunch today, but was disappointed when he was told the restaurant was closed for good. I feel like it was one of my favorite restaurants in Norris, for sure. And I didn't know it was like closing worldwide, which is also kind of nuts. So, I don't know. I learned about it today. It was sad. Another student, Emma Luzio, is also disappointed that their go-to restaurant at Norris is now closed. I'm sad. I really liked it. Um, I mean, I don't, uh, I often forget to use like my dining dollars, but whenever I'm at Norris, um, 
that's like the first place I turned to. Alan appreciates everyone who enjoyed Vietnam Nam, so he chose to close out his restaurant on Friday with a celebration. I would never call this a goodbye. I would just call this an opportunity to serve you once more and, and thank you and just look forward to having um, a few extra smiles tomorrow. Music by Mariah Petway. For WNUR, I'm Mariah Petway. As WNUR Street Beat celebrates its 40th anniversary, Paul O'Connor takes a look at how this WNUR block influenced the Chicago house scene back in the 80s. Uploaded on YouTube by the creator Swirls888, that was a mix arranged back in 1989, none other than for WNUR Street Beat. Street Beat broadcasts off 89.3, the same station you're listening to right now. It's the late night music segment for WNUR-FM, airing genres that include rap, R&B, electronica, but perhaps most importantly, house. Here's Jack Izzo, a Medill senior. He's the current executive of both Street Beat and Rock Show. You know, oh, I would say over 50% of our DJs mix house. House was, house was born in Chicago, and it would feel slightly wrong for WNUR and Street Beat to exist without it. How did house music become so firmly rooted in Street Beat's identity? How did Street Beat in turn contribute to the burgeoning house scene? And how can it still contribute even as it celebrates its 40th anniversary? It might be easiest to go back to the beginning, disco. That is, disco demolition night. At the height of the rivalry between rock and disco, the Detroit Tigers faced off against the Chicago White Sox at Comiskey Field in a doubleheader on July 12, 1979. But this wasn't any ordinary game. To attract people into the stadium, White Sox owner Bill Veek and his son Mike Veek came up with Disco Demolition Day, a play on disco night held two years prior. Fans would be admitted for 98 cents if they brought a disco record to be destroyed on the field in between games. The event was also spearheaded by Steve Dahl, a rock DJ fired during the height of disco in the late 70s. This guy Chicago hated disco because it was killing his rock station, and it was a black gay music form. Disco was very much embraced by the drug culture, by gay culture, just, you know, multicultural, I would say. And... That was Lauren Lowry, a Street Beat alum and host of The Vintage House, a talk show which airs here on 89.3, Wednesdays at 10. I recognized that my my friends from high school and college who were creating and inventing this music have really not archived their own music. You know, people have thrown away reel-to-reels and test presses and things like that over the years. So, As a genre that grew in large part from Black and queer communities, some perceived Disco Demolition Day as an act of aggression. It wasn't just about people not liking disco anymore. It was a rejection of everything that came with it. Ultimately, the seats filled to capacity with 20,000 more waiting outside. They stormed the entrance, and as the disco demolition began, thousands stormed the field. The field was torn, a bonfire was started, bases were literally stolen, according to EDM magazine. The police showed up, and dozens were arrested. Disco took an all but fatal blow after demolition day. But it wasn't all bad, as it forced DJs to re-examine the music form. Um, as people were sick and tired of it or so they thought. 
And so it meant two things. It meant that disco records were really cheap and it meant that the people had to make new sounds. And out of these two changes came house. At the beginning, house music was pretty inseparable from disco. Here's Meredith, sweet MD Johnson. He was one of the main figures who brought house music to WNUR Street Beat back in the early 80s. The Warehouse was a nightclub located on 206 South Jefferson Street on the West Loop of Chicago. Started in 1977 under the direction of resident DJ Frankie Knuckles, DJs from The Warehouse started taking disco tracks and mixing it against continuous 4x4 beats. These beats were often created using new electronic drum machines like the Rolling 909s or 808s. The result was a thumping style of music that came to be known as House due to its direct association with the warehouse. I mean, back in the early 80s, uh, house music was actually uh, disco music. It was another name for disco music. And it was music that had originated, or music that they played at the warehouse. That, that was a popular club in Chicago. Um, and at the time, we called it house music. It's just sort of this unbelievable feeling of freedom, just people dancing, everyone accepting you, you know, and then they describe like, you know, you went upstairs, you went downstairs, and juice on the lower level, which was spiked with acid. And the history of the warehouse is also bound to the history of queer communities in Chicago. That's what I mean. they, they, they created the warehouse as, as a safe space for themselves. The music was so great, you know what I mean? The, music, the people were like, look, we're going to ignore the gay people. We're just going to go to this party, you know, and then it was just so powerful. You know, it was one of the greatest things that ever happened to Chicago. Ultimately, the warehouse closed in the early 80s, but it gave rise to other house clubs in Chicago, notably the Playground, Coconuts, and Frankie Knuckles' own The Power Plant. It also gave rise to house on the radio, most importantly, WNUR Street Beat. WNUR Street Beat started back in 1983 as a successor of Soul Show. It was mainly R&B and hip hop, but as house increasingly expanded outward through Chicago, it became a defining feature of Street Beat. Here's Ira, the I Brown, one of the early Street Beat DJs. You know, it, especially for the African-American population on Northwestern's campus, th there was a, a, uh, a specific movement to go into the inner cities and find the, 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 the brightest, the smartest talent and, and bring them to Northwestern. The population changed on campus, then that fed the movement and the change for street beat. College radio proved to be a really powerful way to experiment with house, still a developing music form in Chicago. Here's Kevin McFall. He was a DJ for WPGU, which operates out of University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. He's also a co-host of The Vintage House with Lauren Lowry. College radio stations are essential and vital. And, and I say that because they weren't bound to formats. They were um, experimental and 
cutting edge where some of the mainstream radio stations in the Chicago area either had issues with ratings or advertising. College radio, not bound by those kinds of constraints, could be very um, free and, like I said, experimental and, and innovative. Since then, House has grown significantly. House is so much larger than it ever has been, right? I, you know, if you look at the past year, there are a bunch of artists who have put out not even like house-inspired tracks, but like house tracks. Like Break My Soul is a house track, and that's freaking Beyonce. But what does this mean for a genre that originated in large part from the intersection of Black, queer, and Latinx identities? Here's Madeline, a former Street Beat general manager and current resident DJ at Smart Bar, one of the most enduring house clubs in Chicago. But of course, with anything, right, like an opportunity for money, and this is how capitalism works, generally tends to then put the power for making the most money off of something into the hands of the dominant culture. So, you know, if you look around and you see who are the highest paid DJs in the world, right, it's mostly straight white men. Again, the music trap. It became, you know, again, it became detached from being black as well. You know what I mean? Like, you know, EDM is not considered a black music. Not a, you know, people don't think about the origins of that. They just party, right? And, and what does it mean for Street Beat on its 40th anniversary? There's been a whole wave of internet radio that has popped up. There's, you know, radio is still important in many ways, but I guess in the sense of like an FM radio frequency is not necessarily, doesn't hold the same weight for like breaking new music as it was. Maybe this isn't the worst thing. Street beat DJs have always had to be fluid, finding ways to make good music as old movements faded. It's more about your ability to like dig for music and find music just like in random corners of the internet, you know? In order and house itself has always been some of the most fluid music out there. People are traversing genres a lot more again, but um, you know, if you were a house DJ, House as a term didn't refer to a genre at the time. House was more about like a feeling and a vibe and a lifestyle. Following the people that started it all might just be the most exciting way forward. University geography departments are disappearing across the U.S. Is Northwestern next? Next, Max Milo has the story. There's a bit of a legend about the geography department here at Northwestern. One man has been the sole professor for decades. I've heard stories from my fellow students about his classes, so I decided to interview someone who took his class in order to learn a little more. I spoke with Braden Spite, a third year studying political science and journalism. So I think that my first impression was definitely that he seems just like the sweetest guy. Um, we took, I took his class during winter quarter of my sophomore year. So last year, um, which was during COVID. Um, and so he was super accommodating with that. He would make sure that all of the lectures and all of the material that we needed um, was available. And he made everything open book, which was super helpful. I asked if it ever seemed difficult for Hudson to keep up with running an entire department. I never really was left wondering what my grade in the class would kind of be. Um, 
And I feel like he was pretty on top of everything. If you had, if you emailed him a question, he responded pretty quickly. Um, And he was also always pretty much on time for class. Um, And sometimes like he would cancel. The only time he ever canceled class was just because of the weather. And that was really the only reason. It seems strange for an entire department to be run by only one person. It soon became clear to me once I started looking into Northwestern geography that there's a lot more to the story. I asked around to see if I could talk to anyone in the field with personal experience as a teacher of geography. I ended up speaking with Jen Lupu, a seventh year PhD student in the anthropology department doing work in historical archeology. span she is also a teaching assistant through the Gender and Sexuality Studies Teaching Fellowship at Northwestern. Right now I'm teaching an undergraduate course that is called Queer World Building, Sexuality in Space and Global Perspective. And it is essentially a, a queer geography class. Um, a lot of the reading that we're doing and the work we're doing in the class is based in geography. A lot of the authors we're reading are from geography departments. I talked to Jen about this clear lack of resources seen in our geography department, but there's a much bigger scope than just Northwestern. According to the American Association of Geographers, growth in geography majors has been uneven or declining since 2012. It had been growing consistently from the 1990s up to 2012, but since then has steadily declined. Yeah, so this is part of a pattern across many American universities um, that started, uh, I believe it started after World War II and has sort of gradually increased over time, um, where these geography departments at many schools have been sort of vanishing and disappearing. Why are these disappearances occurring? I think part of the reason why these um, schools have been losing or have these disappearing geography departments is in some ways due to its associations with colonialism, the idea that we need to map and understand the world in order to con- so that Europeans can conquer it. So if there is this negative association with geography, should we save it? I think within Northwestern, um, you know, there is still a real need for um, geography classes and especially geography classes that are teaching Black geographies and queer geographies and the intersections between all these different um, perspectives within geography. Um, the students that I've engaged with, the undergraduate students, um, have been very enthusiastic about um, learning about how um, it's uh, thinking from queer geographies, we think. Um, It's not just like a sort of thinking about queerness in the world. It's thinking about how the world is shaped by colonialism and heteronormativity um, and and white supremacy. People think about geography as sort of like memorizing the countries of the world or something like that. But really what geography can be is a way about of thinking about the world around us through a critical lens. There's so many practical tools that uh, geography courses teach students um, and also elements of critical thinking. So I think it would be really great to see more geography classes and more geography faculty at schools like Northwestern and, and other universities.
For WNUR News, I'm Max Milo. On this week's segment of Fairweather Friends, reporter Emily Stoll covers the cloudy conditions expected this coming week. Welcome back to WNUR's weekly weather forecast. I've got to tell you, it has been nice to see the sun a little bit this past week. Let's take a look at next week's forecast to see what's in store. From Evanston, Illinois, I'm Emily Stahl, and this is Fairweather Friends. Here's the weather. Unfortunately, the weather decided to keep us on our toes. We expect an 80% chance of snow today with strong winds blowing northeast at about 23 miles an hour throughout the day. Looking ahead to next week, we might see some light showers on Monday in partly cloudy conditions that will last until evening. There is a full moon on Monday, so hopefully the cloud cover won't be too bad for all you werewolves out there. Partly cloudy conditions are expected to last throughout the week, with temperatures ranging from the high 20s to the mid 30s. This forecast remains pretty consistent throughout the Midwest, except further down south might see some high winds and warmer temperatures in the coming days. That's all for this week's segment of Fairweather Friends. Stay warm, guys, and if that sun comes out at all this week, take it in while you can. For WNUR News, I'm Emily Stoll. Taking a look into the headlines. Northwestern softball team, currently ranked 22nd in the country, travels to Kentucky this weekend to play some important games. The Cats started the season ranked 8th in the nation, but they lost, they lost six, ga- 6 of the 12 games. The team will have the chance to redeem itself against competition, facing Northern Kentucky, Louisville, and Toledo. Chicago police officer Andres Vasquez Lasso died on duty Wednesday afternoon. Vasquez Lasso was in pursuit of an armed suspect in Gage Park before the suspect turned and fired. The suspect has been identified as Stephen Montano, an 18-year-old who was near a school when he shot Vasquez Lasso. Officers from the department congregated outside outside Mount Sinai Hospital to show their solidarity. On Wednesday, Alex Murdo was found guilty of murdering his wife Maggie and his son Paul. The Murdo case earned national attention due to the sequence of events, including an old boating accident and a powerful small-town family. It took the jury fewer than three hours to decide the Murdo was guilty of killing the two members of this family. The minimum sentence for murder in South Carolina is 30 years. South Korean officials announced recently that North Korea is facing its most severe famines in decades. SEAL reported that prolonged global isolation and natural disasters in the region have inhibited crop growth in the country. The officials said that North Korea's top leaders met to discuss the problems this week, but there's no information about the nation's plan moving forward. That's all for WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news updates and reports, follow us on Twitter at WNUR News. You can listen to these and other WNUR News stories on our website, WNUR.News. That's WNUR.News. 
Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Our producer today is Brandon Condrance, and our reporters include Mariah Petway, Max Milo, Paul O'Connor, Emily, and Emily Stoll. From all of us here at WNUR News, thanks for listening to our last newscast of the quarter. I'm Erica Schmidt. Catch our next newscast on Monday, April 3rd at 6 p.m. Now, back to scheduled programming.